0: What are the new religious threats to liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Kevin Vallier. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Kevin Vallier. Kevin is an associate professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he directs their program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. His interests lie primarily in political philosophy, ethics, philosophy of religion, and philosophy, politics, and economics, or PPE. He is the author of four monographs, five edited volumes, and over 50 peer-reviewed book chapters and journal articles. He also has books, and they include Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, Must Politics Be War, Restoring Our Trust in the Open Society, and Trust in a Polarized Age. His new book addresses radical religious alternatives to liberalism. It's called All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. And that will form the basis of most of our conversation today.
1: Kevin, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's great to be back. Uh, talking about something pretty different this time, so this is, should be fun.
0: Yes, it is very different, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, and as you know, Kevin, we base each episode on a theming question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what are the new religious threats to liberalism? And I want to start with some sort of context questions and then dive into the deeper meat, if you will. Of course, most of our question is based on uh, your new book, All the Kingdoms of the World, so... I want to define a couple things and get your thoughts on that as I said and then I'll start poking and prodding further. So right in the preface of the book you mention religious anti-liberalisms as a term and I think that's most of our conversation today. So right off the bat, what do you mean by that?
1: So the way to think about religious anti-liberalisms is is as as follows, both the religious part and the anti-liberal part. So the, the first key feature of religious anti-liberalism is its rejection of the liberal doctrine of religious toleration. So it doesn't try to treat religious – religions say, on a par, right? So, so there's, an, there's support for an establishment of religion. That is a state endorsement of religion, but it's stronger than, say, the Church of England. Um, it's coercive establishment of religion. So the government's involved with a, a range of public policies meant to promote um, not just true or right doctrine or religious belief, but also the other goods that come from religion in terms of the flourishing of the the, the churches or mosques um, or temples or what have you. So the first key feature of a religious anti-liberalism is there's a religion, and it rejects liberal religious toleration. Um, so 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 that's going to be important. And in the book, there's three models I discuss, which we'll we'll get to. But one is the Roman Catholic model that I spend the most time on. I think it's most relevant to sort of Anglo discussions, uh, Anglo-liberal discussions. Um, And then there's Confucian and an Islamic version. um, And I can even say a little bit about the the Hindu nationalist version, which I couldn't get in the book. So that's the first thing. Strong coercive establishment of religion. That's a religious anti-liberalism sort of core feature. Here's the second feature that I think is really interesting and important, um, but uh, understressed which is that the, the common threat, another common threat among these views is that the legitimacy of the state does not come from the people. At least it does not originate in the people. It begins in the divine. So this isn't quite true for internationalism, which, you know, it's, it's actually pretty different in certain ways. But for Confucianism, you know, you've heard the phrase, the mandate of heaven. Everyone's heard that phrase. But like heaven or Tian is a kind of uh, non-agential ultimate kind of moral standard there are some confucians who try to make heaven a little bit more like the western notion of god um but nonetheless it's at the very least a kind of ultimate moral standard and but it's non-material it's some sort of ultimate principle um and one can gain or lose the mandate of heaven and so gain or lose political legitimacy entirely in the Islamic and, and Christian versions of this, it's more straightforward, right? So God could directly authorize a ruler. Uh, alternatively, in the contemporary models, God authorizes a group of people who can then choose a ruler. Um, so so for religious anti-liberalism, you've got strong course of establishment of religion and a sort of divine theory of legitimacy.
0: Excellent, and 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 uh, I guess it segues nicely into this next point here. I mean, integralism—you do work on that. It's mentioned in the book as well. Uh, you know, perhaps many have encountered this sort of term, but aren't completely sure what it means. Can you explain how it attaches to like what we just talked about there as well? That term specifically.
1: Sure. I mean, one of the interests of Catholic integralism is that um, even though your readers, your listeners may not be familiar with it, it's actually there's been some significant um, figures who defected from libertarianism to this view once they became Roman Catholic. In particular, um, Ed Faser, who was actually once a libertarian 20 uh, years ago, wrote a great book on Nozick, a philosopher, um, and um, a, a kind of economist and engineering professor who's kind of known, uh, uh, wrote uh, Gene Callahan, who wrote Real Economics for Real People, is a nice intro to Austrian economics. So they're both integralists. Um, and I've known a number of, many of the integralists I've spoken to are sort of converts from liberalism. Um, so th- before I define it, I want the I want the listeners to know why we are even talking uh, about this particular version, um, and we'll explain, I think, why this happens as well. Um, so integralism works in the, the following way. Um, we have uh, God, as understood by Christianity, um, engages in two authorizations of the state on the one hand and the church on the other. So God authorizes the state as the sort of first or temporal power to promote the common good of the human community in this life. So in this way, the state's responsible for the enforcement of natural law. It's responsible for the common good and the respect for human dignity. Um, this includes, by the way, many of the, all the doctrines that Catholics think natural law shows can be banned. So banning pornography, banning abortion, banning euthanasia, banning same-sex marriage – and for some of these integrals, it goes all the way to the pun- the legal punishment of sodomy, blasphemy laws, blue laws, all these things that they think follow from reason, okay? But the way that the state gets its legitimacy is God gives it a purpose, which is to promote the common good, and it retains that legitimacy insofar as it's performing that function. And then God's authorizing the church, um, and the church exists for the sort of not just eternal life but the the new kind of life in Christ that exists in this life so that comes after one's baptism um you know in 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 catholic thought and in this way the church is given the authority over the supernatural common good that is our corporate salvation in Christ the, the church's reconciliation uh with Jesus and the eternal consequences of that um now so far these two moments of authorization are pretty familiar among Christians. It's not a surprise. And in fact, the the church authorization is not even controversial, really. It just depends on what ecclesiastical structure you're for. If you're Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, there's some differences, important ones. But still, God's creating an institution. But throughout the history of Christianity, it's it's just overwhelmingly common to think, um, until recently, that that legitimacy is coming from God in some way, of the state, too. Um, Okay. The third condition is what makes Integralists unique They ask themselves Okay, which of the two polities In cases of conflict should win out Okay Now the church has a nobler function Right, it it has to do with Eternal happiness, or they call beatitude Um and, of course, the state can affect, by its ordinary policies, whether people achieve that or not. So, for instance, it can allow the propagation of heretical books. It can allow for the the sort of spread of temptation in general, say, through through pornography. It can um, do all kinds of things and kind of mess with the church's mission. And um, the integralist reason, the following way, they say, well, look, the church has this really important function. Um, and so if the state's Christian, the church can actually sort of co-opt the state in a narrow range of, range of cases to help to back its spiritual policy with civil law. Okay. So for instance, here's a very common thing that was, you know, common in the late Middle Ages. Um, the church would try someone for heresy if they were found to be a contumacious, that is, culpable heretic. Um, they were excommunicated. If after a year they didn't repent, they were handed over to what they called the church's secular arm, the state, which I, th- I think there would be a second trial, but uh, maybe not. But then the law for a, a few centuries was that they would be burned alive. Um, you can also similarly be punished for apostasy. Um, um, not that integralists have to advocate any particular punishment the purpose is just to understand the relationship between church and state so right. the the church can authorize the state to help support the church in its mission now it can't usurp all of the state's functions okay it can't say oh people need to eat to go to mass so we're going to take over agriculture can't do that um and that's very important feature of how integralism arose which is that you know it's clear god authorizes the state directly god authorizes non-christian states to do certain things so what it's called integralism because it's proposing a kind of integration of church and state around the promotion of the entire common good of the community, that is the earthly common good and the eternal common good, and the church has a kind of indirect sovereignty over the state. So it isn't strict theocracy because the secular or non-religious power does have direct political authority, and there are some domains in which the church has no authority to interfere whatsoever. Um so, so that's what integralism is. It's the two authorizations, and then the institutional implications of the superiority of the church's mission.
0: Right, and 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 as the listeners keeping all this sort of squared away in their head, to uh, integralism would, in your mind, does that sort of squarely or nicely fit under the general umbrella of it's just one example of a religious anti-liberalism, or is that just for strict yes. theocracy, theocracies?
1: No, I think um, I think that um, this uh, fits the definition of religious anti liberalism and gay. But I think there are a number of other doctrines that do as well. Um, The Islamic one is actually a more straightforward because there's not an independent ecclesiastical power. Um, So basically, uh, Allah engages in two acts of will. The one act of will is the Sharia, that is the whole system of of law, and by that it's 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 a whole. In many cases, quite beautiful and intricate system of law. The the stuff we associate with are what are called the, the nastier stuff, with the Hadood punishments, the one that seems to be stipulated by the Quran, like right. removing people's hands for slavery or whatever, or for stealing. Um, but actually, Sharia law legal systems have ways of avoiding ever getting to that point. So God's authorizing a system of law. There are legal experts, the ulama, but it's not. They're not bishops. They're not popes. Then, um, Allah also does something to authorize the office of the caliph. And the caliph is bound by the Sharia. So, you know, if the caliph receives Allah's authorization and respects the Sharia, then the caliph is legitimate. But the question is, what form does the the caliphate take? Um, Actually, the the Quran and and the Sunnah do not specify um, a particular form that it has to take. It could be appointed monarchic, in a dynastic format, it could be elected. Um, But one of the things that gave rise to modern, some modern Islamisms, like the ones I talk about, is that Ataturk abolished the Caliphate in 1924. So imagine a little bit like abolishing the papacy, like it was a big deal. (laughs) And I mean, it's not as big of a deal, but it is still a very big deal. And so a lot of Islamic theologians, the Sunni variety said, well, You can't actually abolish the caliphate. You can't abolish the office. It must just have a new occupant. And so a lot of the Islamic democratic theorists that I talk about think that God has authorized the Ummah, that is the Muslim community as a whole, to be the caliph. Hmm. And that means that Muslim societies can be democratic because all they're doing with their leaders is just choosing a temporary person according to a temporary social contract. Um, and so actually modern Islam is in the Sunni form. Um, it actually can be very democratic, at least among Muslims. And then problems arise. But that would be another example where you have the, the strong course of establishment of religion and you have legitimacy coming directly from the divine. So there's a, a bunch of versions of religious anti-liberalism. And in fact, Islamic anti-liberalism is arguably the most prevalent right form of religious anti-liberalism today
0: right and actually i think just just naturally we're on a good train i thought we've covered like at least one version i guess of a roman catholic yeah anti-liberalism the integralism we've talked a bit about the islamic I and mean, then you, you mentioned the the yeah. confucian as well why don't we just continue down down that as well and then we'll get into some other. oh stuff yeah afterwards.
1: so 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 this is pretty wild and 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 complicated um because in this case uh jiang xing the intellectual that i focus on um, is one of the most important Confucian sort of scholars out there, but he's different than many of the Confucian political theorists, many of whom are quite sophisticated. But they're diaspora and they're kind of friendly to liberalism or building liberal insights into Confucianism. Many of their emphases actually are anti-democracy. They're meritocrats. They'll do things that – some of them even cite Jason Brennan and Brian Kaplan stuff. Um, it's incredible um, <laughs> in defending the, the Chinese. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting um, connection. It is. And and yes. So but, but yeah. So um they're actually less worried about religious toleration because historically Confucianism is way less intolerant. In fact, in many periods of time, it was kind of a religion of the uh bureaucrats in the Chinese state. Um, and they would let popular religion, Buddhism and stuff go. But but Christianity and Islam, you know, you got to keep them out because they'll spread real fast and so they'll disrupt order, which is a big, big deal for <laughs> Confucians. So Jiang's idea is um, he wants there to essentially be a tricameral legislature on which so and each of these would ultimately derive their authority from Tian or heaven. Um, But there'd be the House of Ru, which is the one that's most directly authorized. Um, These are essentially descendants of Confucius who would spend their time sort of mostly studying the classics, the Confucian classics, um, and they would even be selected on this basis um, and they wouldn't intervene a whole lot in ordinary affairs. Well, what they would do to keep the Chinese society sort of better in line um, with sort of the ultimate moral goals, that is the Confucian virtues. Um, and that's critical for legitimacy. It's critical for living a good life. Um, it's critical just for being a, you know, a good person. Okay? So it's an extremely virtue-focused view. It's extremely virtue-focused and if the government loses its virtue, that is, if it's, you know, there aren't a lot of Confucian sages around, but at least they're gentlemen, um, you know, the mandate can be lost. So you've got the House of Rue, you've got the House of Earth, or it's called a different number of names. And, and then it kind of gets its legitimacy from the preservation of Chinese culture, history, and interestingly, the environment. Hmm. So, so one of Jiang's big problems with Western democracy is that it's too short sighted. And it doesn't protect – he blames environmental catastrophes on on democracy, actually, um, and a lack of respect for the way in which heaven manifests itself on earth. Um, and this would, of course, be filled with its own officials appointed in its own way. And then finally you have the house of the people. And the house of the people you know, is it, just ordinary democracy um, in terms of selecting uh, people. It mostly has a consulting function, but it can also legislate. Um and then those three houses, there are certain constitutional rules in in the, about how they relate to each other and who trumps when. But if the House of Rue kind of gets too theocratic, Jiang says, the other two houses can overrule it. Um, so this is his tricameralism that he calls the way of humane authority or the way of the humane authority. Um. So ha- so so if you prefer Confucianism, the 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 uh, he also believes in the establishment of a symbolic monarch that he thinks represents Chinese culture over time and makes it more continuous. Um, and that person should also be a descendant of Confucius. Um, um, and it's kind of weird in his theory about how much power the monarch has. He says it's symbolic, but he kind of seems to have a little more power than that. Um, and he thinks, in so basically the way that heaven works is it authorizes... All three houses, but with a house of rue, it's more intimate. So you've got – but there's still a kind of divine authorization of them all, and they're supposed to be designed so they interact in such a way that the mandate is retained, the common good is promoted, and the virtue in the people is cultivated um but he's he's not interested he's interested in the conservative establishment of religion uh, a a course of establishment of religion but it's actually much less co- coercive than islam or the uh, or, or the christian models so for instance all eastern religions are totally fine christianity and islam are, are fine as long as you know there are ways in which they're sort of proselytizing and mass convert and destabilizing elements are are controlled because of course you know again political stability and continuity over time it's just an extremely deep-seated feature of Confucianism and in Chinese political culture broadly. Um, um, it's, it's also important that there are meritocratic elements, the way that various people are selected should be by, you know, certain kinds of testing. But, of course, the, for a long time, for, you know, well over a thousand years, the Chinese were selecting the high state officials by their um, knowledge of the Confucian classics. So it's not – that wouldn't actually be a new a new thing. Um the interesting thing about the way of the humane authority is that it was actually looking like Confucian thought was going to have more influence uh with time uh in China with all the founding of Confucian institutes and there's all kinds of revivals and so on um but she has taken things in a different um in a different kind of more at least in his own thinking classically marxist direction so if you read a lot of the intro Confucianism books uh Jiang's thought's there. It's like, okay, here's the person that thinks we really ought to go for it. He has what I take to be, and I don't know how influential it still is, but a private academy is training people uh, in Confucian thought, uh, but he tries to kind of steer clear of, of politics. He does predict, along with many of the Christians and, and Islamic anti-liberals, that there'll be a mass revival of the religion, um, and that in those cases, the um, the institutions could be implanted. Um, but only once there's this kind of background of of, of widespread belief. But I mean, Confucianism again—it's it, a much thinner religion too. And so you know, you can have a lot of beliefs about is Tian an agent or not? Okay, well, it's a, a, you know, um, do people survive death? I mean, the, it it doesn't it doesn't have essential ecclesiastical authority. Um, and it, it does. So there's a way in which it's a lot more tolerant. And I will say this, I <laughs> think China might be better off under Jiang's uh, uh, view than the current situation, um, hmm. you know, which I would not say for liberal societies being replaced by integralist ones. Right. Um, and with the, with the so that will give you a sense of the sort of three big theories. I'm working actually in Islam with the uh, the former head of the Tunisian sort of main assembly, um, Ganoushi, who's since been recently politically imprisoned by their new quasi dictator was super sad because that was the place where the Arab spring had like taken the most route. Right. Um, and he's actually moved Islam in less illiberal directions. Um, so he says, look, they're Christians and, and, and Jews and stuff. They can have a vote. They just can't be heads of state. Um, you know, um, so he's actually moved things in a liberal direction by introducing more toleration and more democracy. um, um, and so, you know, it's important to understand these anti-liberal thinkers, like in their particular political contexts, because I think it may surprise some of your your listeners that actually these anti some of these anti-liberals are proposing things that would be improvements <laughs> a, 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 r- relative to what what exists. Whereas what the the Catholic Integralists our proposing would make things much worse.
0: Right. Actually, that, that's that's very interesting. You're sort of ending on that kind of train of thought there, because that was sort of my next question. So I think you've already provided a great, r- huge scoop of flavor for the different types of sort of, you know, religious anti-liberalisms, or at least liberal anti-liberal sort of trains of thought, if you will, based on these uh, examples and religions here. And that was pretty much actually my next question, is we, you talked a lot about uh, what someone holding these points of views might be for, and sort of sketched what one might be able to picture a sort of country, society, whatever, run by the this type of arrangement or point of view. I was actually going to sort of flip it and say say you're one of those people that ends up in underneath this sort of governing structure if you will and you're a uh you know under the Roman Catholic one let's say integralism and you don't happen to be a Roman Catholic. I mean, what's the sort of, I I know it's really hard to generalize across all the examples and there's different flavors and debates and disclaimer to yep. the listener, please read Kevin's book. We're not covering everything in an hour here. But generally yeah. speaking, do you find a spectrum of sort of for lack of a better term, the way a lot of these thinkers feel about handling non-believers and non-conformists in religion is it everything from a liberal <laughs> attitude, quote unquote, to get rid of them. What, what what kind of things do you find about the non-believers
1: or conformists? They all have actually a lot to say um, about this because they recognize it's the main it's the main challenge, which is look, there's pluralism, um, and and each group gives different answers. The Confucian answer is actually relatively. Is relatively straightforward, which is, you know, they can kind of do what they want. It's just the, the government's not going to endorse them. It's not going to be neutral at all. Um, and they can't but, participate I mean, they can in the ha- government? Have private
0: reader. Just, Sorry, just to drill down um, that further. Could so, they participate? So,
1: so they can participate in the House of the People. Um, um I'm not sure uh, about the secondary house, but I'm pretty sure you have to be a Confucian um, okay. to be in uh, the House of Rue. So, um, yeah, I think it doesn't really matter to him as long as there's some like feedback mechanism from the people, you know, um it's not a not a huge deal. Um, um, but yeah, but yeah, so it's still establishmentarian, but you can sort of set that one aside. In Islam, there's a huge range Um, because you can go all the way from, say, Tunisia and Indonesia on the one hand, all the way to Saudi Arabia on the other end in terms of which kind of which parts of the sharia are you going to enforce which school of jurisprudence are you working under which punishments do you think it's wise or appropriate to to allow um and there seen as there's being a lot of flexibility in terms of you know what you, how you enforce things how you you know and you know in terms of popular policy but i actually think your listeners you know sort of imagine the islamic versions cuz they they were kind of in a certain sense more familiar with islamism than integralism so the interesting thing about integralism is this yeah. All the major ca- branches of Catholic political thought say you can enforce the natural law. So the do- idea is, look, there's more morally objective requirements. Um, they apply in certain ways to all the kinds of social issues that we argue about, and then the Catholics come down on the conservative side on all the non-economic issues. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, you know, as I said, you know, we're looking at bans on abortion, you know, bans on euthanasia, but that's stuff like say a conservative like Robbie George would be for, who's no integralist at all. So it's important to understand that the, if the legal enforcement of natural law is just on the table in Catholic political thought. And so there is legal – here what philosophers call legal moralism. There's, there is the legal enforcement of morality in certain kinds of, ide- certain kinds of ways. What makes integralists distinct, and this is very interesting, is that um, if you're baptized validly, regardless of what you turn out to believe as an adult or if you change your mind – you're a member of the church, and so you're a member of the church authorized state as well, in a special way,
0: validly as in, Which a, is a Catholic baptism. Sorry, I don't want to get pedantic. Catholic, just, well, but like, sure. so what's
1: important about right. what's important about this is what happens to non-Catholic Christians that are baptized, and okay. also atheists and Jews who are baptized as infants, hmm. validly. Okay, it raises a whole bunch of really thorny and crazy, and actually fun to discuss um, options. But in a normal case, so you're, you're a Roman Catholic, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're a Roman Catholic in good standing. Um, in that case, you're not only subject to the natural law, you're subject to the law of the church, the canon law. So not just the civil law, but the canon law. And that means you can be tried for heresy internally and excommunicated, but only with spiritual penalties, hmm. not, not physical ones. Right. Excommunication is the most extreme because it cuts you off from the church. So, I mean, you could be punished with all kinds of ways in terms of uh, you know, certain sorts of penances could be could be pretty minor, right? You just, you know, say like say a couple of homeries and you're 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 done. Um, so it can range a lot, uh, but the canon law systems, it's it's a pretty sophisticated body of code um that changes over time as the church updates it. So you're actually, once you're a Catholic, you're a subject to two legal codes. The civil code and the canon law, and the canon law in an integral society could, under in certain ways, be backed by coercion. Okay, right. So today's Catholic Church, they are saying, no, absolutely not. Can you coerce a heretic? We can excommunicate a heretic, but but we're not going to put him in jail. We're not going to ask him to be put in jail. That's wrong. Um, that's a violation of the dignity of the person. They would say now. The integralists think those developments were a mistake. It is true that you can't force anyone into Catholicism. You can't forcibly baptize anybody. And so you can't force anyone into the canonical legal system if they don't want to be forced into it. Unless they were validly baptized, in which case they're stuck. Because baptism leaves an indelible mark on the soul. You can't be unbaptized. It's metaphysically impossible on Catholic thought. So if you grow up and you were baptized as a child, um, you are still subject to the canonical legal system. Even if you were tried and you were judged non-culpable because you don't have the relevant internal beliefs, right? Um, so if you were baptized and you were Jewish and maybe your father thought, well, you know, there's certain advantages that come with being baptized. You know, there's a preference for Catholics, but just getting baptized and then think, oh, no, 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 no. That was a terrible idea. I totally shouldn't have done that. It's too late.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Too late. You're, you're a subject. Okay. Now, again, how the legal system responds to that fact is, 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 an, is another matter. But you are a member under the authority of the canonical legal system. Now, what does that mean? It means that you can, be, you can be punished for violations of supernatural requirements, for instance, going to mass regularly. That's not something you know through reason. Because for Catholicism, we have these kind of two different ways of knowing. God reveals himself to us through reason, but also through revelation. So you can't know by reason that you're supposed to go to Mass every week, right? There's no way to know that outside of revelation. But if you're a member of the canonical legal system, I mean, if you're a member of the church-authorized state in virtue of your baptism, if the church says, look, if Catholics don't go to Mass, there's a $50 fine, you got to pay the fine. Um, Unless, you know, um, you can show that you're non-culpably ignorant of the truth of Catholicism.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And Catholics have a, a uh, category that's uh, called invincible ignorance. Um, so you've got ordinary Catholic natural law, which the classical liberals uh, in many cases can find pretty repellent. Um, but integralism adds this whole level of system of uh and rewards, to be fair, um, that apply to the baptized. And you might say, okay, well, as long as there's only adult baptism, a classical liberal could say like, okay, like you joined like you, you're, you made a contract, you joined an organization or whatever, that's fair game because you signed the contract, it was voluntary, or what have you. What makes integralism particularly worrisome is that it applies in lots of cases where there's not consent, like infant baptism. Mm. So if integralists were to say, no, 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 no. We're we're not gonna hold anyone to account unless they like agree. We're going to catechize them so they know what they're getting into. We're going to be very, very clear. And then if they agree, they agree. And if they, you know, don't, we're not going to force them in with baptism. But, but, integral will say, no, 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 no. That's a mistake. It's too liberal. Baptism makes you a citizen. Consent is not always necessary. Um, and they think, you know, if you base it on a consent, it's basically giving into liberalism.
0: Okay. That makes that, yeah. That I, yeah I, see, I see the connection yeah. there. I can see the logic there. And and we talked a lot about those who who are baptized and went down that route and like how they would be subject essentially to the two realms of authority for lack of a better yes. term. Me quickly there. But yeah. uh, but what about what well, would I know? And again, I know there's a range of different ideas here and different groups and different thinkers okay. will have answers yeah. to this. But what kind of range of thought do you have on the uh, the, the non baptized or someone that's like yeah, I'm just I, I'm not a Catholic, but yeah. I'm living in the Catholic and integralist system.
1: Yeah, so in this case, it's actually it's actually very interesting. You're of course still subject to the requirements of natural law. So you know, if you're you're in an ordinary same-sex marriage, um, banned, could go to jail. A lot of things can happen to you, independent of integralism. But the Catholic Church was very clear in the Second Vatican Council that by most Catholics' lights, they endorsed universal religious freedom. So even if you were baptized. You wouldn't be subject to this. This is not a position that's taken seriously within Catholicism anymore. Um, it's actually arisen in Western Europe and the United States for reasons that are really interesting. But it's it among sophisticated theologians, it's like, oh, yeah, that used to be – that was the view for a few centuries. But, like, it's wrong. Um, but one of the leading integralist thinkers was able to reinterpret the doctrine of, of religious liberty to apply only to the unbaptized. Now, if you read Dignitatis Humanae, it sounds super liberal because it sounds like a a religious freedom for everyone. It says, this Vatican Council declares the human person has a right to – boom. But integralists say, yes, we're talking about your right of religious freedom against the state so long as you're not already a member of the church and the relevant relationship between church and state does not obtain. So if you're – long story short, if you're unbaptized, you basically have liberal religious freedom. Hmm. You can raise your kids to believe what you want as long as it's not a violation of natural law, so for instance, you could ban Muslim polygamy um you know um so you because you know again, on the Catholic view, reason will just tell you reason just tells you through sort of thought and discussion that um polygamy is wrong, so you can ban it, but um if people want to raise to themselves you know people Islamic or Jewish or whatever. Um, that's fine. That's protected. Their uh, freedom of the press is protected. Their freedom of speech is protected. Their educational freedom is protected. Um, you know, Their church organizational or associational freedom is protected. It's really a beautiful document, which the vast majority of the church reads as universal religious freedom. So the unbaptized actually would have, and this is super weird, they would have more religious freedom than Catholics. But but is on this
0: view but but the footnote is I guess in the physical world and life under a structure of governance, like a, that structure of governance is guided by basically yeah. the Roman Catholic point of view, right
1: Yes, now of course I'm talking to you about ideal political theory. I'm telling you right. what they say what, right what, yeah now if you, as soon as you go to non-ideal, I mean yeah, it was like if you look at these regimes, like it was just a disaster. I mean just like in, ter- in terms of um, just like human rights. I mean you just look at the Jews um how they were treated um under these regimes um it, it, i mean the the papal states you know the the t- temporal domains governed governed by the pope um all the way down through the most of the 19th century um had jewish ghettos to basically the end mm. i mean and and their rationale wasn't and this I, this doesn't matter a lot but it's still worth noting which is that um they the reason <laughs> They could. They argue this is like, look, it's been canon law for a long time. The Jews can be contained in various respects in order to not sort of pollute Christian minds. Um, so it isn't based on any race theory. Um, although uh, uh, I do think there are parts of Catholic theology that kind of maybe laid the groundwork for the race theory. Um, it's not. You're not going to get a racial rationale for that. It's a purely religious one. It's you got to protect from spiritual pollution. Um, um, so yeah, I mean. In terms of non-ideal theory, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the of people I know in the in the legal world, the political theory world, that are Jewish have actually been following this movement very carefully because they know this, um, and right. they're sometimes the most informed about this phenomenon more than many Roman Catholics because they're just like, "Look, this was terrible, um, so let's not do, let's not let's not even get anywhere close to taking it seriously again."
0: Right, and actually that actually does naturally tie into something i want to ask but we're gonna wait and take the break now because it's a perfect time to do so so everyone you're listening to curious task i'm speaking with kevin valier today the curious task is a podcast from the institute for liberal studies feel free to send questions feedback guest recommendations or anything else that's on your mind to curious task at liberal as always a huge thanks to our supporters on patreon including randy t simmons travis smith and john robson remember to like us on facebook follow us on twitter at the curious task rate us on apple podcasts or wherever else you're listening to the curious task and check out the institute for liberal studies Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task and speaking with Kevin Valley today. So, Kevin, I think the first half was great. We packed a lot of information there. We talked about religious anti-liberalisms. We gave some examples of that and sketched out the Roman, some Roman Catholic versions of that, Confucianism, Islamic, etc. Got into a bunch of great stuff there. I want to jump back in with the following question or premise. It might actually really be the thrust of the next half here, but. You know, when we have a serious look at what is offered by many of these religious anti-liberalisms, which is what your book is ultimately about, obviously they offer critiques and knockdowns of liberalism. Like, I mean, by definition, right? Now, um, a lot of people that might consider themselves just straight up lowercase L liberals or classical liberals um, might just hear a sentence or two summary of re- what religious anti-liberalism is all about and just dismiss it and not want to engage with it. Um, but your premise really is that not only, at least from what I understand the way you're going about all this, is that not only is this stuff worth engaging with but there's also stuff in it that is worth thinking about. So I want to kind of lead off with that in our second half here. Number one, did I, did I read you completely wrong? <laughs> I mean like obviously you're not no, dismissing no, it no, or, no, or is no. that is that so, the way you feel so- about it?
1: So, I think for a lot of your listeners, I mean, that what I'm getting needy being the theology because I'm trying to reach young religious anti liberals. And so, they need this is the stuff they need to talk about. But uh, there's also this broader framing of the book for, for secular readers, which is that look, we, we got to get familiar with these views. Why? Why would you fool with these views? Right. There's a couple of reasons, but I think I'm, and I'm, this may unnerve some of your listeners, but this is this is what I think uh, as a classical liberal who spent a lot of time researching this stuff. Um, we're n- naturally political animals. We're gonna have to make collective choices about how to live. There's gonna be politics. Okay. It's also the case, though, that we know of no society archaeologically, I think, you know, historically, that does not have religious people in it. Some may be really religious societies, but every society's got religious people in it. And so, you know, even, you know, you try to force it on people, then they're just like Marxism becomes a religion. Like there's just some people that really need a sort of a systematic sort of view of life that informs what they ultimately value. Um, it's not a thinner doctrine of liberalism that's talking about what the state can do. Um, it's it's a whole sort of philosophy of life. And it's going to make sense if they think, look, there are these religious goods um, that maybe politics should be involved in promoting them, so so one of the reasons that classical liberals I think have to deal with these views is these folks are going to be around now. Many classical liberals tell themselves, "Well, you know, things have been secularizing or what have you." The thing we have dechristianized um, in much of Western Europe a lot, um, and some in the United States. Um, I don't think I think I call it dechristianization rather than secularization because. Very few of these people are thinking like, oh, all that exists is what's describable by physics. Like they believe in higher powers, aliens, crystals, you know, Wicca, all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Good point. So so people are still fundamentally have these supernaturalist beliefs. And despite the efforts of both those sort of like aggressive atheist socialist regimes and then like way milder sort of more liberal secular regimes, um, you know, you just um, you just don't get rid of that. Um, you can kind of privatize it. It just doesn't stay in the box for long. The reason I think we thought that it did was socialism was suppressing the political expression of religion in various varieties all over the world. So you have the Chinese Marxists. You have the Russian Marxists. You have the sort of secular Congress Party in uh, in India. You have uh, Erdogan and the sort of Turkish secular governments um, – not Erdogan, sorry, Ataturk. Erdogan's the one who reversed most of it. Um, right. So you have the suppression of the political expression of religion that's quite dramatic. Um, and I think that now that that's died down, we're just – humanity's just returning to its sort of spiritual, theopolitical mean. And, and if I'm right about that, if socialism gave us the sense that that religion was going to go away – um, it's really primarily going away in in, in Western Europe and the, and, and the U.S. There's been a resurgence after communism in Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, it, you know, India's Hindu nationalism is as strong as it's ever been, even though there have been people who've been for this for about 100 years now. Um, African countries are actually converting to Christianity and Islam um, and are thinking in these terms, and Africa's the fastest growing continent. Um, so, you know, outside of you know, the, the you know, Western Europe, Canada, and so on, um, you know, we're looking at a religious world, mm. a religious humanity, and they're going to ask political questions. And I think one of the big minuses that classical liberals have had is that, you know, we're in some ways, with the exception of some many forms of socialism, the most secular strand of political thought. I mean, classical liberals have been pretty skeptical of organized religion from the beginning, even on its own terms, not even in right. political terms. Um, I mean, you go back to Smith and Hume, for instance, um, you know, uh, um, I mean, if you, Bentham, I mean, my goodness, I mean, these, these are these, you know, some of the first real atheists. I mean, you go back before Hume, it's really hard to find philosophical atheists before Hume that are just for real. You have to say, oh, well, they were secretive about it or whatever. Mm. I think Hobbes was a theist. I think it's clear that he was of of a weird sort. Um, Descartes clearly, I mean, so a lot of the people that people say, oh, they're secret atheists. So Even in philosophy, philosophy, I mean, the amount of philosophers that believe in a deity is just overwhelming in the history of philosophy. A lot of people want to say, oh, well, Darwin changed everything. Well, I mean, in some places, in some intellectual circles, that's true. But religious belief has been pretty darn recalcitrant. So if we want to have free societies, we have to be able to reason with the people that are always going to be members of it. And where classical liberals have, I think, failed. Is that we we've got you know people say oh all we think about is the economic dimension of the person well that's not quite true because you know we think about the moral dimension of the person right we say it isn't just the wealth of nations right it's the theory of moral sentiments um, there are certain kind of maybe Chicago influenced models where the moral psychology falls out of it and it's all homo economicus but but we so we talk about moral psychology we talk about economic psychology. But classical liberals have heavily under-theorized the human being's spiritual impulse. This is, a, you know, being a liberal down to my bones, this is the big deficit of the liberal tradition. The closest person – I mean you have some Christian liberals that have tried to make it all fit. Lord Acton, for instance, uh, is a great example. Um, the closest to developing a spiritual ethos for liberalism is Rand. Hmm. And it just turned—I mean, she's actually spoke to the spiritual dimension of the person. It just turned out that not yeah. a lot of people wanted to go there. Um, so she, she's talking about aesthetics. I mean, how many libertarians are talking about aesthetics, right, mm. um, in, in a systematic way? So Rand, I think, understood um, that you needed a philosophy that spoke to the whole of life. And And the kind of liberal's burden is that we're saying, actually, if you start to do that, if you start to try to want— all of this stuff out of politics, it's just going to go, it, you're not going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Things are going to go badly. And so the thing that's a weakness of the liberal tradition is also our strength, right? Which is that like, look, I mean, we're just making the argument that society, society is just going to work better if we don't try to institutionalize this stuff. But here's the problem. You've got all of these young conservatives, particularly you know, religious conservatives, really smart Catholic, nerdy kids. They go to their Ivy League universities and all of a sudden. They know they were excluded from these universities for decades and centuries in the U.S., and they were supposed to be accepted, normalized, and now their views on LGBT issues and abortion make them complete outcasts. And they were told over and over and over again by American Catholic leadership that if we just conformed, we would be accepted, and it turns out that was a total falsehood and a lie. Liberal neutrality was a lie. This is what these kids believe. Liberal neutrality was a lie. It had to be a lie. And America is opposed to true Catholicism. And so this is where things are in terms of the culture war creating the need, the psychological need and desire for a sort of full anti-liberal approach. That would be strong enough with a real fortitude, right, to fight the progressive left, which they see as also a non-neutral movement that uses liberal neutrality as a cloak and uses normie liberals um as, you know, a kind of a, a kind of trick, right? Um, what's really going on is that there's the rule by the woke religion, right? And then they start to sound like all the standard, you know, sort of right-wing anti-liberal folks. But but they've actually got an alternative. So instead of the reason they make progress in certain circles, many, you know, very online people under 25 that care about politics, right. they know about this. Right. Um, and, and this is another weakness of liberalism that's to some extent built in, which is that liberalism doesn't try to answer every question p- and that you might want. Right. And so there are some versions of liberalism that have tried to try to do this. You know, Mills liberalism, you know, tries to tries to say a, a lot. Um But um, the problem is that, you know, secular classical liberals just don't know how to speak to that need. And in many cases, secular classical liberals simply invalidate the need. They just say, look, that's irrational or that's silly or they'll get over it eventually. And then that just keeps not happening. Um, And I just don't want classical liberals who are particularly Canadian, but also American um, to just take a global perspective and say, okay, maybe things are moving in the right directions or, you know, as you see it religiously. Um in Canada and the US, um, but um, you know, outside of that, you know, things are are pretty different. And if you start having large immigrant populations, um, you know, that's gonna change things too. Um, so that's a reason, a reason to care is that there's always gonna be religious people around. Um, and that one has to make the case for liberalism. And there will always be the temptation to say, well, the religion should tell us everything. It should inform everything. It should be a seamless web, right? And the liberal always has the burden of saying, ah, we've got to be, we've got to be really careful here. But if if you're not taking the religious perspective seriously, you're not reaching them. And I will tell you, and then your listeners will be I know people, multiple people who like know libertarian arguments. They know the arguments. They've written books defending libertarianism and boom, they're gone. They they liked the natural law, natural right stuff. So then they read Aquinas and they were like, this is not libertarianism at all. It's Aquinas is talking about promoting the human good. And libertarians are always talking about respecting rights. Where do these rights come from? They aren't rights that promote the human good. Um, and so they say, look, you know, we want to promote the whole human good. And these classical liberals are like making up these rights that say we can't. And you've got, you know, and I'm speaking in their mode, not right, right. Not mine. Okay. So mm-hmm. and their mode is like and, and these libertarians are perverted. They're perverse. I mean, they have all these messed up, you know, sexual views. Many of them are this is the stuff I've heard, okay? They're, right. They're autistic in many cases. They just don't have ordinary functioning psychologies. I know it's very insulting or offensive, but I mean, this is like these are people who are like libertarianism is like must be destroyed. Right. Um, And many of these folks hate libertarianism more than anything else because they'll say at least the progressives understand that – they understand really that neutrality is bullshit. Like they understand it, and they don't even pretend when they rule. This is, again, speaking in the anti-liberal's voice. Like the progressives know that this is all a game. They know the neutrality stuff is a lie. They just rule based on their comprehensive doctrine, and there's really no alternative. And the libertarians are just completely deluded um, um, in, in thinking that there's any alternative to this. There's just, is, is there going to be a big state that governs in favor of one comprehensive doctrine or another? That's all that matters. So I want you to think about these religious anti-liberals and integralists in the U.S. like Adrian Vermeule in the following way. You're in the Lord of the Rings, and you're told you can't destroy the ring. There's no way to do it. There's no Mount Doom. You can't, you can't abolish it, right? So what do you do? you got two choices. You can give it to Sauron, or you can use it yourself. Is it going to corrupt you? Is there a risk? Yes, but you don't give it a Sauron. That's crazy. This is how the religious anti-liberals think about the administrative state. This is how they think about the state. It's like there's gonna be a big state. We're gonna use it for good or we're gonna use it for ill. And the libertarians trying to destroy the administrative state, they've had 50 years of work and they've completely failed. Um so, and and this is what uh, some of these folks, I mean, I think they have a lot of influence for J.D. Vance, increasingly, I think with Josh Hawley, I think they've influenced, because a lot of them have deep connections with Hungary, and Hung- one of them works for the Hungarian right. government now, actually, Right. and um, they're trying to organize the GOP, because they're saying, look, all there is is ideological warfare, spiritual warfare, theological conflict, okay, and we just got to get the right theology in, not the wrong theology, and these classical liberals are just filling people with with these ridiculous lies that, you know, it's possible to have a limited government that respects multiple perspectives. It's not, it's not feasible. And these are the same people suggesting that we have, say, a established Catholic state in the United States, which I think is a lot less feasible than classical liberalism is. So their feasibility judgments are strange, but I'm I'm trying to give your listeners a taste because, and let me give you an example. Let me just give you one more case because I, sure. I really, I really want um, people to hear me on this. I was, um, had someone email me out of the blue as a secular Jewish, uh, classical liberal. He's 25. And he's, you know, I just really had to reach out to you. I'm reading, you know, particularly my advisor's last book, the open society, Jerry Gauss's open society and its complexities. Um, and he says to me, and you know, I don't know how to communicate with my non-liberal friends. All they want to talk about is theology. Yeah. You know, I'm secular. I'm Jewish. I don't, I don't, I don't care about Catholic theology. What am I supposed to do? And, and I said, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book is to sort of help liberals get a grip on what they're encountering. Atlantic just reported last last week that at Yale, many of the political students are, you know, for like, they're kind of Strauss and Claremont people or they're, uh, they're integrals, essentially. Um, So, you know, I think younger classical liberals have to be prepared um, to at least try to meet these people where they are. So, yeah, let me give you an example. Here's how you're going to know. That you've encountered in such, a person. they will use the phrase philosophical anthropology. That's that's one of the 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 tip tip of the hat, um, which is that they're thinking about okay, what is the full nature of the human per- person? What's its ultimate function? And then, what do libertarians have to say? Well, they have to say things like we should legalize prostitution. To which, you know, these folks are like, that's not good for people. That's not what's good for right. people. Um, what's good for people? What help what makes their lives worthwhile? Libertarians don't care about worthwhile lives. They just care about these rights.
0: Right. Right. And actually, you know, that that as you're describing all that, too, it strikes me as interesting, and I'll have to be very general here, because this would probably take a whole yeah. three hours between you and I, but but I've, I've even noticed in sort of, if you will, interacting and traveling through overlapping different, like, you know, classical liberal or lowercase L liberal type-ish circles, that there also seems to be in just, in, in the spheres of people who are very concerned with lowercase L liberalism, too, a sort of... Um, and again, this isn't everyone, but I've noticed different pockets of it uh, sort of re-interest in sort of larger questions about, you know, for lack of a better term, common good, and a bit more of like, for lack of yeah. a better term, the spirit of the person, even in a secular, non-religious yeah. sense. And these folks, who would still consider them, lo- you know, lower themselves lowercase L liberals, are saying that, you know, let's call it mainstream lowercase L libertarianism or classical liberalism for a long time, has actually sort of hollowed out a lot of that too. So in a broader sense, yeah. it seems like there's you know, a growing squish on a mainstream lowercase alpha, thin libertarianism, classical liberalism from multiple ends, at least from what I've observed.
1: Yes. Yes. And I I think it's very true. It's very true on the left. Um, And I think it's partly, and this is how my, my current book connects to my previous book, which is that I think under conditions of high polarization and lower trust, um, you don't, you're taking the other side as seriously. Um, And so like your whole impulse to tolerate is weakened because you think the other side is just corrupt. And so like, why, like the other side disagrees with you because they're bad, so like why would you moderate what you're for? Why would you compromise? Why why not go for the the whole the whole thing the whole good? Uh, Rawls called this the the uh, the zeal to embody the whole truth in politics,
0: right? It, and yeah. I think
1: it's yeah that's what it is. And it's on the left, it's on the right, and these we've got these two kinds of anti liberalism,s and I think they're they've gotten a lot of steam out of rising polarization and falling trust um in the us where i think uh, uh, among the sort of in the uh uh english speaking world these things are by far the most uh powerful in part because we're so much more polarized mm-hmm. than uh you know any other any other uh uh sort of liberal democracy um outside of i think maybe uh it depends on how you want to characterize brazil they're really polarized mm-hmm. um but um but yeah, so I mean, I think the 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 overall thought is, yeah, I mean, we want politics to be doing more for us. And so I think, you know, classical liberals have their work cut off for them of this. Well, we've been caught off guard, because I think we were implicitly supposing that secularization was just going to proceed pace, And so if we make economic arguments and stuff, you know, that's going to be enough. And now there's this sort of upsurge of people saying, well, we have to be able to speak to more of this. And the way I think about it, as a kind of ultra heterodox Brawlsian, but a all the same is you know, we're gonna have to make the case comprehensive doctrine by comprehensive doctrine you're gonna have to go and say okay and there are a lot of people doing this but you know how do you know there and there are people like Mustafa Akil at uh, at Cato is mm-hmm. in a lot of work with Islam um and and liberalism there's been a lot of really interesting um work on, on Christianity the interesting thing is liberalism just fits like way better with Protestantism than like almost any other strand of most, most religions. I think Aaron Powell would say there's versions of Buddhism that are even better, but but, um, with Protestants, it's sort of less of an issue with Eastern Orthodox, you know, uh, liberals don't really interact with them. Most of them are in Eastern Europe and and Russia, um, Greece, but um, it's the Roman Catholics because they're at the heights of intellectual and political influence in the United States. Um, five Supreme Court justices, former Speaker of the House, the current president, um, but also just intellectual circles on the right. Catholics are extremely influential and they have this picture of the whole human good of of politics, their own approach to law and policy. And if you see young people look at this, and I've seen this, I've seen people convert to Catholicism and say, wow, now I really know what's going on. I know, I know, and, you know, uh, GMU PhDs, an econ that abandoned classical liberalism for this stuff. Hmm. Um, I mean, we, we we don't have a good way of speaking to this kind of ultimate impulse, and that's just going to mean people are just going to wheel in, and they're gonna they're gonna supply what's being demanded. Um, and, right. and so I think I think we're in more trouble because I think a lot of secular classical liberals take see these as such unserious views they don't really. They don't really understand why this would be be happening, um, but I think it is happening mm-hmm. um, in, in in my experience. And um, you know, if you get right now, many Catholics are kind of fusionist types. They want more legal moralism, of course, than than classical liberals ordinarily would like. Obviously, but like, they're not against the establishment clause. I mean, like, they're not. They're not. They're ultimately like limited government. They, they're they're pretty cool with markets. Um, and if these views are sort of more influential within Catholicism, then, you know, you're going to see these changes. Now, a bunch of us classical liberals who are affiliated with the Acton Institute, the Do Stuff, the Acton Institute, um, you know, you're, you're actually, your listeners are probably most likely to be familiar of the sort of libertarian Christian fusionists, uh, with Stephanie Slade at Reason. Mm. Um, she's probably, but there, there are maybe, I don't know, 20 or so of us, um, who are really interested in, in, and working out these These questions sort of Christian classical liberalism, fusionism, a new kind of form. Um, So there are people out there thinking about this, but conveying the need for the project, I think is important. Right. And,
0: and so one of the things I I think we're stepping on it too, which is great. Like, I think I also want to get, make sure I asked you today too. um, And because, and I'll, I'll ask the question. I'll tell you why, why I think it's important. So like the ultimate question is, do you think you know, everything we're talking about and the rise of these sort of like, you know, both the discussions of and the actual uh, religious anti-liberal movements and thinking and so on, is it due to some change in some pockets of more religious and conservative wings and the way they're approaching things? Or is this less of a change in the movements themselves and more just how people would consider themselves religious or conservative reacting to certain events? So in other words, is the fact this is becoming more of a, timely and relevant discussion and religious anti-liberalisms are rising quote-unquote is this more of an evolution of you know sort of religious thought and more conservative wings in different populations or is this more reactionary
1: this is a very good question because um, there's one answer for integralism but there's actually a much clearer answer for the others um in many cases it's a response to perceived imperialism of liberal democratic powers so if you read Jiang Xing, you're looking at his Confucianism. He th- he blames the West for Tiananmen, hmm. and that was a shift away from liberalism for him. The Islamists, oh, they do not – I mean they're the West, great Satan, all this kind of language. I mean they're like, yeah, we need to go back to Islamic civilization and not have anything to do with these colonizers. Same thing with the Hindu nationalists. I've tweeted one thing out of that. I was thinking about Hindu nationalism. It was my most read tweet. Ever, Hmm. And I just got savagely attacked by these Hindu nationalists because I described them, the Hindutva, as a liberal, which I didn't think would be an insult to them. But they started calling me a white colonizer.
0: Hmm.
1: And it was – because I was actually complimenting Hindu nationalism because I was saying it was more democratic by far than the other anti-liberalisms. So I thought I was like saying something nice and that my followers would find of interest um, because it's way less focused on particular doctrine. but it also but you read them and you read Hindu Nationalists going back a hundred years as I've been doing the past couple of months. It's all like getting rid of the British, moving Muslims out in many cases. Um because, you know, the, the – the so so the sense that there are these powers that are imperialistic powers, the thing we have to do is get back to our great civilization hmm. and to base our civilization on those great values. So I think this is very much the case with China's sort of perceived, for instance, a century of humiliation on the 19th century, um, Mao sort of built in anti-imperialism to um, – Into kind of Chinese culture, you look – but again, you look in India, you look in the Islamic world over and over and over again. It's a response to colonialism that the liberal democratic powers – this is my take. They got really, really rich because they were – they had markets, and that allowed them to build, and they were innovative. And so they built really big weapons and misused them horribly. And I think anyone would have misused them horribly. But it created this massive power inequality that made liberal colonialism feasible. And a lot of people didn't like it. Now, here's the connection with integralism. Many Roman Catholics see Protestantism and liberalism as this kind of heretical movement that destroyed this kind of unified Christendom. Hmm. And so it's not colonialism in the sense that like – in the the, sense like 50 years ago or 70 years ago, the British ruled India or what have you – it's it's a little more vague than that. It's like we had this unified, coherent civilization, and then first Protestantism, and then it's sort of evil, evil child liberalism came in and 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 direct things, and now they rule. Now the woke rule, and uh, for them, all classical liberals, left liberals, all the same thing. It's a it's a it's a silly category, but nonetheless, um, there's still the sense that like it's the elite that's the this liberal elite. That is essentially a colonialist alien power. And what's driving pe- a lot of people is we got to get rid of the alien power. What do we want to do? We want to go back to our religion being shaping everything, right? Informing mm. every institution so that there's this sacred, meaningful, sort of seamless web of life. Um, the sacred canopy is some talk talk about it. Um so yeah, that's that's I think a huge part of it is the perceived imperialism, be it literal imperialism or cultural imperialism of liberalism that has caused a great deal of, of this political change and political development. So and in many cases, they're just totally making things up. Like it's just a real change within these doctrines hmm. where they have a different picture of the past than there was. This is especially true as I'm finding in Hindu nationalism where – like, they, they try to control the history because they want to show there's a continuous self-conscious Hindu civilization that goes back four to 6,000 years.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, so you're, there's an imagined – you know, the old sort of bit Dick Anderson, there are these imagined communities. But this is very much what, what, what they're doing. So these are, I think, new developments to the religion, these religions, that are having some important continuities with the past but are new in a variety of ways, particularly their embrace of the, the modern state. Um is 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 a new is a new thing in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on when you think the Chinese state actually began, it may it may be really old. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of a, a big state. Nonetheless, the point is, um, I think a lot of this is a relax uh, reaction to the perceived overwhelming imperial power of the liberal states or liberal global liberal states and liberal international institutions.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, that, that tracks. And that makes a lot of sense, especially as you visit where different religions are in terms of different cultures. Like you can see why, you know, the, no, that makes a lot of sense and our our time's winding down here. I mean, it really flew. This is, this is a great topic, but I will say before I move us to our formal wrap up, I mean, like I I think all that to say, and what seems to me and, and uh, what's left impression on me looking at your book and also the discussion today and something I fully agree with, I should say, and endorse is, I mean, you know, your your overall point that regardless of which pocket or pillar of conversation we're in here, I mean, like, this stuff deserves to be engaged with and has to be understood on its own terms. Otherwise, you're not really doing much worth for yourself understanding what's going on out there. So that, I thought that was a very, very good point. Um but but I mean in each in each episode I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word, Kevin. As you know, so I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up, so you can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So I'll throw the last official prompt at you, which is ultimately: What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here? on what the new religious threats to liberalism are. In other words, in everything we've talked about, if you want someone to leave listening to you here with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, what do you want to leave them with?
1: What do classical liberals want to say to deeply religious people that want their faith to inform their politics, other than you're wrong and irrational? That is... That is the question I want your listeners, if, if they're in this position, to ask themselves, what would you just assume, for the sake of argument, that there are some people that, want, that, that are, are sincere religious believers, that think politics should inform, or their religion should inform their politics? What do you have to say to them that would be persuasive to them? And how are you going to do that if you don't even know what they think, right? And so the reason that I encourage, you know, and I think, look, so the way I wrote this book is it's kind of got two audiences. The the one is the people who who take these ideas as theirs and those who are observers. And I wrote the book to kind of work at different levels. And And, and so, for instance, there, in the middle chapters where I'm knee-deep on the integralism stuff, with the exception of chapter four, which I think most people should read because it's a plan for integralist takeover that's pretty weird and you should – know about it but um a lot of the getting in the weeds is, is trying to talk to roman catholics specifically but also to develop a broader framework for how religious anti liberalisms work as a class and so i think one thing that that listeners could do because the book's only 15 dollars on kindle um uh, right now if you buy it from oxford through my website it's 21 dollars for the hardback um it's out september 1st but you can get the kindle now um which is um if you read the introduction, you read the first chapter to get familiar um, with the view, you read some of the history in chapter two. um, And then you can kind of skip around in the middle where, you know, although I think you should read chapter four, three, five, and six are the ones that are really meaty in terms of the theology. And if, you know, you don't want to get knee deep in that, that's okay. But chapter seven talks about the analogies with Confucianism and Islam. And that I think for secular listeners is just really valuable. Um, I did a lot of work to try to to, with that, I worked with a number of different scholars in different religions, um, and I think that will give you a sense of like these these views as a class. Um, and then, if you want to dive into any one of them, you just follow the citation trail. Um, so, I, I really do think that this book, even though I am speaking in one audience to religious antilibels themselves, I think it will give you a sense of what's going on, um, where the views are, where what what you're really um, up against, so to speak. Although that's too confrontational a word. Um, so I think I think there's a lot in the book that is worth um the sort of secular liberals' time. Um, then there's of course other stuff that's that's you know, it's really for the religious anti liberals themselves. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot that, you know, uh everyone can sort of get something to come from it. But but just to bring it back to that central question, what do you have to say that's compelling to people of faith who want their politics to form their religion? or their religion to form their politics, sorry. That's that's the takeaways. like, what, what can you say for liberalism? And I want to tell you one more thing that you're going to hear if you have these conversations. Liberalism isn't neutral. You're going to hear that over and over again. All the religious anti-liberals say it, and they all say it over and over again. Liberalism's not neutral. So you got to think about, well, what is liberalism for them? What is neutrality? And that's another thing, you know, we could have gotten into, but, you know, that's another thing you're going to hear. that They're going to tell you all there are non-neutral views, we just got to go for the correct one. Why why is it that classical liberalism says, no, there's another way? And how do you defend that? So that's 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 I think the challenge uh for many classical liberals when it comes to confronting views that just seem preposterous and absurd uh to to many classical liberals. But um but I wrote the book because in in part because I wanted classical liberals to sort of see, oh wow, like these views are pretty intricate. I mean yeah they're pretty strange but like it isn't, it isn't, it, it's silly at one level, but like, it's very coherent and, mm-hmm. at another. Um, so
0: no, I think that's an excellent place to leave it, Kevin. Thank you very much for joining me on the curious task again.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me on.
0: The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Segein. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Wappenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.